So um, when I was asked to do this, uh, my first reaction was something on the lines of, what? Because, you know, me. Um, and then the second was, was I needed to read some psalms because I haven't written, written, read the psalms for quite a while. Um, and so I started, literally, I just went Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, read all the psalms. And I think it's been intimated before, but they're quite a diverse bunch, and there's quite a roller coaster of emotion going on there. We have psalms where it's kind of fervent praise, you know. God, you're amazing, you're incredible. God, we love you, you've looked after my forefathers, you're incredible. And then they flip to something on the lines of, oh, where are you? I'm doing everything right. Everything's going wrong. Why aren't you helping me? Um, and then in between that, there's kind of, those people over there, they're wicked, they're sinners, they're godless. I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be perfect. And uh, there's a, a bit of uh, kind of hope. I hope that you will forgive me. I hope that uh, you will allow me to live in your house forevermore. And then we get to the kind of the vengeance stuff. You know, those people have wronged me. Wipe them from the earth. Closely followed by, thank you for allowing me to wipe them from the earth. You know, and then uh, it's kind of this, this massive roller coaster of different emotions. But as I was reading it, what struck me was that relationship that the Israelites had with God, the covenant that they had with God. And a question kept cropping up in my mind, and that was what was different between that relationship and my relationship as a Christian. And uh, I know some of you will be looking at me now and you go, well, you know, Old Testament, Israelite, New Testament, Christian, duh. But um, a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the, the ideas in that Old Testament style of, of, of belief were very prevalent to me and, and certainly to my, my parents' generation growing up in small communities in South Wales. Sermons were very long. Um, they were all about us being worthless sinners. And when we sinned, we had to repent and continue to repent. And if we didn't repent, we, were not entered, we would not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, as simple as that. So we had to keep repenting. And we had to try and be as sinless as possible. And what that kind of led to was a lot of people who were trying very hard to be as pure as possible who when they sinned, they felt massive guilt and fear of God. They felt fear, you know, fear of his retribution. And of course, the flip side of that was that if things did go wrong, the assumption was, oh my goodness, I've obviously done something wrong. God's punishing me. I'm worthless. And uh, the, the, the knock-on effect of that is that a lot of people got very fearful of the outside world as well because they assumed that there was evil everywhere and evil could corrupt them. So people would point out that that's evil and then you'd look away because that's what you do when you're scared. You look away from things, you move away from things. So people became inward looking. And uh, you got a lot of uh, piety, you got a lot of self-righteousness and you got a lot of people who really didn't connect or work in the outside world. So as I'm reading, the one psalm that I kept coming back to was Psalm 22. And I, I read it, and I wondered why that was. Um, so let's have a look at the psalm itself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the one line, the one verse that is both in the New Testament 
and the Old Testament, in the whole of the Bible. Um, And if you read this psalm, it is the journey, and the very human journey, and I want you to remind yourself of that human journey, of someone who is in absolute anguish and pain, but is desperately trying to keep hold of their faith in God. For everything that's happening to them, You know, my God, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And then, yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Affirmation of who God is. There is obviously lots of elements that we can now see as kind of prophetic to Jesus' experience on the cross. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. In the New Testament, the reference is to Elijah. Um, When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling to Elijah. And then later on, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So we have this, this battle of a man in extreme pain. And you can understand why Jesus was using this on the cross. He would have known this psalm. He would have known it very clearly. And uh, he would have probably used it in his head as, to try and keep hold because he was suffering a very human death. He was suffering pain and anguish as a human being. And as he was doing that, he was holding on to the faith in the will of his father that this was going to lead to something amazing. And as we go through, suddenly, there's, there's a one line that I really love in this. It says, do not be far from me. And it is actually repeated. He says, do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And later on, just after this, the, the, the line that says, they pierce my hands and feet, all my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Again, prophetic But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then there is a switch. It changes. He starts to praise. He praises God. He declares God. And then he says, lines such as, those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth Remember, this psalm was originally written by David. He was talking about Israel. Israel is one nation on earth. But suddenly he's talking about the whole of the earth. And of course, what happened with the crucifixion is Jesus opened everything. He opened God to us all. Because before that, the wicked and the sinners had been godless. They hadn't known God. But suddenly we have the opportunity to know him. And then... He carries on praising, and there's this line at the end. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Which is kind of like an acceptance and a courageous shout. Now, when we talk in the New Testament in, uh, in Matthew 27, 46, when he says, Eloi, Eloi, labas bachthani, I always wanted to do that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They describe that he makes another cry again in a loud voice. And there's part of me that likes to think that that's what he was crying. 
and he has done it. And then, of course, he gives up the spirit. So I read that, and I'm going, crikey, yeah, whew. It's a bit of a roller coaster, that one, isn't it? And then the human, the human element struck me. God sent Jesus, Son of God, but also Son of Man in human form. You think he could have come as anything. You know, we're talking about God the Father. We're talking about someone who is omnipotent. But he came as a human being. Why did he do that? Jesus came in human form. Before that, God had been the God of Zion. On Mount Zion, they're massive, all-powerful, all-seeing, ever-present, all-knowing, almost beyond human comprehension. Suddenly, he's God in human form, a human being. And Jesus, obviously divine, is also able to understand the human condition. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. During the New Testament, you see him cry. You see him angry. You see him fearful in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see doubt. And you see courage to carry on and do that, which is the will of his Father, knowing that he's going to face a painful death. Those are all human traits. And because of that, we now suddenly had a personal relationship with God. Someone who had had turned to us and, and sent Jesus so that he could understand us as human beings. And of course, when Jesus left us, we may have thought, oh, that personal relationship, he's left us now. But no, he gave us an added gift. He gave us the Holy Spirit, which was anointed. Suddenly, it's gone from there to there, and now he's inside us, in our hearts, in our souls, our guide, our counselor, our advocate, that was, as was mentioned in an earlier sermon. I was listening. And uh, That means that we have an intimate relationship with God. He's not massive. Well, obviously he is massive, but he's also personal and intimate. And as I thought about that, a few other things struck me. He's given us those two gifts, and then on the cross, he gives us the biggest gift of all. He saves us from the consequence of our sins. Now, we're still sinners. We still kind of, oh, yeah, um, do things wrong. Because if you ask a parent in this room if they would change their children so they would be the most dutiful, perfect human beings on the planet, every parent here would turn around to you and go, no. Because they are who they are. With all their imperfections, with all their, their little quirks. Why would God, the Father, change us in that way? He our sin is part of our humanity. Our ability, our, our, that's what, it's our imperfection. So, we're still sinners. But the difference is that when we sin, we can hold our hands up, we can say sorry. We can understand that it's t- taken us a little away from God, but we're already saved. He did that on the cross. We don't have to feel guilty. We don't have to fear his retribution. It's, we're saved. So what we can do is we can step forward again. We can step forward and step into life and work harder as to be better Christians and better human beings. And why do we do that? We don't do that because of fear. We don't do that because of, of obligation or because of retribution raining down on us. We do that 
because we love God and God loves us. And that's the thing that struck me the most because I don't do what I do. I don't believe in God because of the promise of eternal life. I don't believe in God because I feel obligated. I don't believe in God because I'm frightened of God. I believe in God because I love him. And I do what I do because of that love. Because he loves me, I love him. So when I do wrong, when I step back and do wrong, I step forward again. I listen to the guide in my heart and I walk forward as a better human being and as a better Christian. And I try harder for love. I'm going to finish now very quickly with a story. Um, my mother, she came from a small community in South Wales called Penabryn. Many years before, there'd been another young lady. Her name was Florence Jarrett, Flossie to her friends. And she was a good, God-fearing Christian member of a God-fearing family. I I, I always found that a little weird, that God-fearing could be used as a compliment. God-fearing Christian, good. The Jarrett's had helped establish the chapel in the town. They were a big deal. But Flossie, she met a man called Ivor Edmonds. Ivor was not a God-fearing person. Ivor rolled his own cigarettes. Ivor drank. Ivor went to the dance halls on a Saturday night. He was a hard-nosed coal miner. But Flossie listened to her heart. And her heart drew her to Ivor, and they got married. I don't think Ivor had a choice, but they got married. But Ivor, on getting married, turned around to Flossie and said, I'm going down the dance halls now, Flossie, come with me as my wife. Now Flossie said, I can't do that. I've gone to chapel, they've said to me that the dance halls are of a den of iniquity, and dancing is the devil's work, so I draw the line. And Ivor went, no, I'm going to go down anyway, because I love to dance. And you can imagine in a small community what that felt like. You know, the tongues wagged for shame, Flossie. You made the wrong choice, Flossie. A lot of pressure was put on her because of that. But Flossie, again, listened to her heart. And in her heart was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, her guide, said to her, Flossie, ignore what they're saying. Learn to dance. And that's what she did. Next time Ivor went down the dance floor, she went with him. She learnt to dance. Contrary to popular belief, she wasn't corrupted. She still went to church. She still was a good Christian woman to the day she died at the age of 86. But by going to dance, Ivor stopped dancing with other women, which would have been what was happening at the time. He danced with Floss. He danced with his wife, which is what he wanted to do. Their relationship was strengthened. They were married for over 50 years. They had five children, 13 grandchildren, numerous great-grandchildren. Flossie, who was four foot ten, and I had the, the good honour of knowing, was a formidable woman, a great spirit, quick to laugh, quick to tell people where they were and put them in their place. Um, can you imagine her here and me here? Yeah? Uh, she was incredible. I am, though, possibly a little biased. Because upstairs, playing now, is Flossie's youngest great-granddaughter. And in front of you is Flossie's youngest grandson, who is very, very grateful to God and to Flossie that she learned to dance. That, that, that was the end. <laughs>